all across America and around the world. This is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. Welcome to Veterans Radio. I am Jim Fawson. I'm the officer of the deck today. We've got some great programs for you. I think you'll find very interesting. We always want to remind you, you can find more about Veterans Radio at its Facebook site or at the web. VeteransRadio.org is our new URL, VeteransRadio.org. Where we're on the web 24-7, you can find a lot of our podcasts there as well. We post new ones every Tuesday, so you can get a new story, a new interview, something you didn't know before by going to veteransradio.org. And before we get started, we want to thank our sponsors. First up, we want to thank National Veteran Business Development Council, nvbdc.org. It was established to certify both service-disabled and veteran-owned businesses. You'll find out how they can help your business by going to nvbdc.org. We want to thank Legal Help for Veterans. Legal Help for Veterans fights for veterans' disability rights all across the nation. You can reach them at 800-693-4800 or on the web at LegalHelpForVeterans.com. I do want to comment on Radio on the River, which was hosted uh, oh a couple of weeks ago now, supporting Veterans Radio. Great day, a lot of good fellowship, camaraderie, raised a little money for Veterans Radio, and you can still do that by helping us stay on the air as we've now been for 20 years by donating. Hey, whether it's 20 bucks or 200 bucks at veteransradio.org very safe way to go and make your support known to Veterans Radio we have a story about a Medal of Honor uh, recipient that uh, he tells a great story David Bellavia about what it's like to actually be in the room with the president and get awarded the medal so that's really the focus of that and then we're going to talk a little bit about uh, who controls um the National Guard, an interesting little discussion arising out of Texas. We want to welcome to Veterans Radio today, Medal of Honor recipient, David Bellavia. David, uh, welcome to Veterans Radio. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Well, this is an extraordinary story and a unique story that you've told it a couple of times. Uh, uh, There's a lot of media on this. But uh, David, uh, in 2004, was with a U.S. Army unit, uh, the Ramrods, and they were in, they they were on the, you know, pointy end of the spear at the the second battle of Fallujah. David's squad, uh, after three days of constant fighting, were were, uh, checking a, at night, checking a darkened house, I think it was the 10th house that uh, the squad had gone in to try to clear, and all hell broke loose. Um, some of that was actually captured on film because there was an embedded reporter. Ultimately, David, um, as the uh, staff sergeant, decided something's got to be done to protect the guys here, and he went in single-handedly, cleared the house. Uh, I think there were four insurgents who were uh, killed and another that was severely wounded, um, but all of that action was done to to get the fire that was raining down on his squad 
uh, dealt with. And as the NCO, kind of it was his call. He couldn't send anybody else in. This was something he had to do. Um, and that's to some extent what they expected of uh, Sergeant Bell, as he was affectionately known as. David, you've had a chance to recount this story a number of times, but before we get there, give, give us a little about why you joined the Army to begin with. Well, to some extent, you wanted to see if you measured up. I really, you know, I didn't, you're absolutely right. I didn't understand that until, you know, there's a lot of, you, you, you go through, you know, you go through the Army in your youth, and you don't really know what the world is like. And then you leave and you realize that ultimately in my life, that ultimately is the ultimate challenge of an adult is, am I leaving my uniform in a better place than I got it? Am I making my community better? Am I making my organization better? Do I measure, am I needed? When we look at all the problems veterans go through when we get out, addiction, suicide, depression, it's all about whether or not they're needed. Do we have a purpose? Do we have validation? Is, 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 is there someone out there that wants me as an integral part of a community and a team? And, and it's so hard to replace that fidelity. In fact, in uh, David's most recent book, Remember the Ramrods, an Army Brotherhood in War and Peace, one of the lines I wrote down <laughs> when reading it was, quote, proving to yourself why you are needed in the fight. And I, and I thought that really struck a chord. And it wasn't really until 9-11 when I think the country and most family members of people that were in the military at the time and veterans. I mean, even other, most the Vietnam veterans I talk to, I get all my wisdom from the Vietnam generation. They've been through everything we've been through. They had families, they had jobs. We don't need to look at a magic eight ball when we look at our future, we look at the Vietnam generation and think, look at the way these men and women have conducted themselves. This is our future. They're, they're wonderful examples of that. But when I talk to those Vietnam vets, many of them didn't even get appreciated until 9-11. 9-11 wasn't just a generational fight. 9-11 was a generational thank you to service, whether it was law enforcement, first responders, or Vietnam veterans and current members. So after 9-11 happened, all of our families became like soccer moms, you know, like they were so proud that we chose this, that the war was happening, but we made the, the decision to want to do this. And so that relationship with my dad and my service completely changed as it did for many sons and dads after September 11th. Oh, absolutely. And and you were a, sort of an interesting uh, enlisted in the army kind of guy. You were a non-drinker. You were a studier. You were a you you were a writer. Um, you had a young son that that had had medical issues who you missed dearly. The, you, you were a different kind of non-commissioned officer, as I read this and as I understand it. Can you explain to our listeners who maybe don't understand what the role of an NCO is to them? Yeah, so, so the NCO is the is the backbone uh, of the of the military. Uh, when we go to foreign countries and we try to rebuild, you know, armies, one of the things that Iraq and Afghanistan was was sorely missing was an NCO corps, which is that connection between the officer and the enlisted soldier on the ground. 
As an NCO, I can only be judged by what my subordinates do better than me, that I have to be replaced. It's a necessity in our military that the, the current generation is more proficient and disciplined and professional than the previous generation. And so your job isn't to, to professionally goaltend the young kid coming up. Your job is to nurture it and break out that greatness inside of them. And well, once you realize that a leader is only judged by how their subordinates eclipse them. You were in the, you were in the Army for six years, I believe. And, yes. and you, your first book was House to House. And I, can you just talk a little bit about that? And then we'll roll into the current book, Remember the Ramrods. And there really was no genre of book that talked about that small unit relationship and a deep dive as to what actually combat is like, trying to make it realistic, but also trying to show that this is, we've got to be super cautious when we go to war. And so how do we conduct ourselves? Are we living for people that we lost? Are we sacrificing and, and being a better individual because of people that we didn't bring home? Or are we going to be entombed by that and be a victim of that? And I think it takes sometimes 20 years for you to kind of look back and do an inventory and say, well, here are the mistakes I made. Here are the things that are working out. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and, yeah. and I want to point that out, that it was in November of 2004 when the second battle of Fluge is raging and, and you have to ultimately clear this house that activity initially got you the award of the silver star which was subsequently upgraded to the medal of honor in uh, uh, 2019 but you wrote house to house in 2007 so it's just three years after this in the time for reflection the time to to maybe see all of the impacts of that trauma from war maybe hadn't all come to the surface yet uh, david you're absolutely right. And I think that's a, a lot. Well, the other thing, too, is that, you know, th it was such a weird experience to I never knew that I was nominated for the Medal of Honor. It was the media that was telling everyone in 2004, five, six, that I was nominated for the Medal of Honor. So I didn't really I I thought it was going to happen. It was just a matter of time. These are big investigations. Then I hear about this reporter who filmed the event. And there's a tape out there. And now I'm thinking, well, what's on the tape? Maybe what was on the tape was so horrible that, you know, it didn't work out with my version. But the Medal of Honor is an award that they don't interview. They don't care what you think you saw or did. The only thing that can go in a Medal of Honor uh, award process is what other people witnessed. So if you engage two individuals, but no one saw it happen, it didn't happen. It's not in the citation. Absolutely. The only thing that's in the citation is the evidence of something that happened from two people, not one, but two. So you need two witnesses. So my biggest problem was that, you know, what had been witnessed was only on a tape with a foreign journalist. And, you know, I figured, well, this is just, it's never going to happen. It's not the end of the world. My, my award was coming home and being with my family. Amen. Um, Amen. Yeah. No, no. The, the mere fact that this Australian journalist was embedded and was helps demonstrate the chaos under which everybody is operating. 
I think it's really helpful for the general public to understand this isn't a, the Medal of Honor isn't something you raise your hand and say, I'd like to get. And I did really cool stuff. So, so the tape is 29 minutes long. The, the a documentary that he made, Only the Dead, that went on HBO, and that's really the five, six minutes that he put in that documentary. But it was apparent to me, and, you know, the Army doesn't tell you anything about the process. It's very opaque. It's very cloak and dagger. You don't know who voted, who did what, who said. You're kept out of everything. But it's very apparent to me that that people saw the full tape and the questions that came from the army and the investigations that are done that, that someone had access to that because they have information that no one really would have. Uh, Uh, And it is certainly not from my book and it's not from me. It's from what was on the tape. So in a way it's a weird experience to know that the world is watching something that you thought didn't, you know, didn't, you know, they're watching the videotape of you and you didn't know it existed. And then at the same time, you realize, well, without that videotape, my unit, my friends, myself, none of us get the recognition without that videotape. So it's that double-edged sword that, you know, we love Michael Ware because of what he did and what he provided for our unit. One of the things that another, uh, people I don't think understand, again, that this is not something you volunteer to be a Medal of Honor winner, uh, a recipient, and unfortunately most of them do it uh, and, and end up deceased as a result of their, their activity. But, you, um, but usually there's somebody promoting this on your behalf. Was it the Army? Was it uh, uh, somebody at the unit level? Was it uh, journalists? How how did and I, I kind of refer to them as the Medal of Honor Sherpas? Somebody helps carry this package through this ex- elaborate process, and you might come out the other end of that process. But somebody does a whole lot of work, don't they? They do. Uh, and honestly, the question I get asked the most is, if you could do it all over again, would you do it? And my answer is no, a hundred percent no. And I don't mean that because I don't love my guys. I don't love you know my army this is way too much to put on one person to, to be the only, to, to be the only living recipient of a war that had 4 million American men and women fighting in is, is not at all reasonable. It's unsustainable. There's, there's way too many boxes that you could be put in. You get a lot of, it's just not something I ever wanted for myself. Honestly, I wouldn't want it for someone else either. So it's not a fun process and it's not something you wake up every day and think, wow, this is so great. I'm going to coast through life. It's actually a, a, a burden that is more difficult than serving. I'd rather have an apartment in Fallujah than <laughs> wear this thing every single day because it's, it's, you just, the expectations are, are unrealistic of what you expect to see from a recipient. But you're absolutely right. There are always people. And again, and, and so mine was Doug Walter, who was my company commander. My other uh, commander was killed in Fallujah, and that was uh, Sean Sims. So knowing that Sean Sims, you know, before he died, acknowledged that this was something that was worthy of attention, knowing that, you know, journalists and other people were telling this story. Sometimes that story gets out of control, and it's not really what happened, but it's a good story. And sometimes the Army kind of wants to promote things that aren't exactly you know, based in 100% reality. But but Walter, Doug Walter, and Peter Smith, and Peter Newell, and my division, they all were like, hey, 
you know, I know it's been 10 years ago, 15 years ago, but put this thing up against anything you're currently looking at. And I don't think until that videotape or documentary comes out there that I don't think people believed it, honestly. I mean, we, we get a lot of people tell stories and sometimes the fish is two inches long. And sometimes at the end of 10 years, that fish is a whale. We call that, we call that false failure. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so, so maybe people didn't believe it. It was too unbelievable. Everyone wants something out of the recipient. Cause if the recipient says the policy has failed, it gives it more credibility somehow. And it doesn't make sense. It's not real. The Vietnam guys had 80, you know, peers from different, gener- different sides of the fight over, you know, 10 years, the if Afghanistan guys are 22 of them from all over from 2000 and, you know, two and the seals and army and Marines. And there needs to be more recipients from Iraq so that we can tell the entire story of what our generation did at, at war. And when this, all this attention came my way, I thought, you know, I went through it with these guys. What is it that we're all missing? For years, I thought that I missed the war. I thought war was what I needed in my life to feel complete and whole. And it dawned on me going through this process that the war isn't what I miss at all. I miss the people. I miss the men. I miss the relationships. I miss, I miss the sense of purpose and obligation and duty. And I can have that again. Without going to war, I could have those relationships again. Why? What am I afraid of? Why not make this award about all of us? Why not get back to what we were? And if they're open to it, and they were, and the vast majority of these guys were like, I miss you. And I can say things to you at 40 I couldn't say at 20. We don't say we love each other when we're 20. We're too tough. But at 40, you can say you love another man. I I miss you and I love you. Give me a hug. And that's where we're at in middle age is we're able to tell each other how we feel. We miss each other. We want each other to be back. And it was such a healing, cathartic experience. And I thought to myself, you know, all these books that people write as veterans, what this is, this is, this is a good news story. We don't have to be alone. We don't have to go through these things alone. You're still an NCO. Go out there and be with your soldiers. Lead your soldiers again. Bring them together. Call them up. Have them in your life. And if they're struggling, help them back up just like you did, you know, 20 years ago. There, so there's really the message. There, There is really the message, David, that I got out of the book and why the book is subtitled An Army Brotherhood in War and Peace. That's the message I think is powerful in Remember the Ramrods is if if you were in service and you had those connections or you were the NCO or you were the the commander, get off the couch and reconnect with these guys. It's going to be fantastic. And your reunion, if you will, was kind of around the Medal Medal of Honor ceremony, which is obviously extremely unique. But talk about how those 40 men came back together and and began maybe maybe began healing, but certainly added to the healing that had been going on. Well, first of all, when you reach out, we're all different. We are different socioeconomic backgrounds. We cancel each other's vote. We root for the different teams on Sunday. You know, we are a cross section of America. 
And yet we seem to get along. We seem to be able to work together. We disagree. We're passionate, but we love each other and we respect each other. And so I thought my entire destiny on this planet was to lead men in war, lead men across an objective. And when time goes by, you realize, well, your destiny is to be in someone's life, to impact their life. And, and, they have such a huge, profound impact on my growth, on my matriculation to civilian life, on how what kind of a father I am, what kind of a man I am. I, I would not be the person I am if it wasn't for the Army and it wasn't for the soldiers I served with. And it's tough to be getting a phone call out of 15 years later and saying, do you want to come to Washington and celebrate an individual? Do you want to all the stuff that you want to put in a box, you threw it in your barn, you close the door, you put it in a time capsule. Do you want to unleash all of that and celebrate one guy? And if that's the way it was sold to them, I'm not sure I would want to do it. So we had to make this about us. This is not an individual award. It's a unit award. And I'm not just going to stand up there and you're going to clap. You're going to come on the stage with me. You're going to meet the president with me. You're going to be a part of everything I do. I'm going to have 40 guys and girls that I serve with and the parents of the fallen and the children of the fallen. And we're all going to do this as one big group. And that's how we, that was a promise I made when I brought them out there. And that's what we ended up doing. And it was such an amazing healing experience. They trusted me. uh, And, we're back in each other's lives now, and it's beautiful. Well, this, your, your book uh, portrays a lot about the backside of the Medal of Honor ceremony, which we in the general public get to see. Maybe a little news clip. Maybe we'll watch it longer on YouTube. But you really uh, peel it back and say how you were feeling, what you were seeing, what you were doing. I want to comment on a couple of these things, that uh, nuggets that you revealed, and maybe you want to comment on a couple of more. Um, President Trump, uh, who uh, awarded this in June of 2019, before he signed the citation, asked you, do you want me to do this? What was your response? I don't know. I, 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 I didn't want anything to do with this. I, I've said no so many times that they had to break out. They had to break out my, my enlistment contract. And the enlistment contract is specific about the inactive ready reserve, how, the, the types of things <laughs> right, the Army right, can they do. They can call you back. back. Yep, yep. And it's small print. It's the recipient of the Medal of Honor. You can't say no. And so I was, yeah, I, I didn't want it. I uh, everything I knew everything was going to change and I didn't I, I was comfortable I was comfortable in my little my I, I loved my life and it was it was void of that time da- David's, got, children, David's got these three kids he's uh, successful in the radio business uh, you know he's a, he's what they call talent I'm not he is um, yeah you didn't need this <laughs> and I thought it was funny that you reported out uh, hey I told him no but uh, you know yeah, he did it anyway um, uh, your your troops your men um, and and brings you all the way to this ceremony so it was an interesting arc that somebody said hey we ought to we ought to track that down if we can uh, it was an incredible they put a tremendous amount of research they found the guy he's a wonderful man I'm just saying I'm a grown man 
just tell me I found your recruiter. <laughs> Don't build this up where the president of the United States is like, we got a big surprise for you. What is that big surprise, sir? It's your recruiter. You know, maybe a little bit of a, of a Debbie Downer at that. But he was a wonderful guy, and it did. It showed this guy put me in the Army, gave me this opportunity, gave me a, a, an incredible trajectory. I learned so much. I love Sergeant Reyna, and I love the Army, so I appreciate him. Well, one, one of the other things, again, we in the public see this, uh, you know, there's a row of generals always and secretaries of defense or Army or whoever. Um, uh, in your instance, uh, as I said, you had a lot of the, the ramrods, maybe I think it was 40 guys and family members, your family members. You have this this big, you know, audience of 300 looking at you um but uh your your boys kind of took it to a new level didn't they uh they were enthusiastic why don't you tell everybody about that these ramrods i love these men these guys are tough they are you don't want to mess with the first infantry division in a fight they're salt of the earth the fabric of america from all city rural suburban all walks of life all demographics ethnicities, sexualities. We got them all. They're beautiful, beautiful men. But my God, they turned that, that ceremony is very sterile. And it's like, this is all formal. And I think, I think the word, I think the word the White House would say is solemn, not sterile. It's solemn. It's It is a solemn ceremony. And they turned it into a rally. They turned it into, it was like a promotion ceremony outside the barracks. Like I was, I was putting with, on with, with alcohol, with alcohol served <laughs> with way too much alcohol served. And, and these guys were, and because you know that, you know, there's a cross section of our military. Uh, these guys are physically fit. They like their drink. They're rough guys. They're kind guys. They're wonderful people. But in the white house, they were back at the barracks and they were loud and they were getting into it. And it turned everything sideways. And I thought General Milley and the chiefs of staff were going to lose their mind. And they embraced it. They embraced it. And I, I was so grateful for that because, you know, when Milley gets upset, you know, those eyebrows, he gets angry. <laughs> and and he'll, he'll turn on you, you know. But he, he, uh, he gave us permission to, to, to be what we are. And uh, it, was, it was a cool experience. Well, and you report in the book, you write in Remember the Ramrods, that's, that um, unusual energy uh, played right into President Trump, who uh, seems to get himself energized when the crowd's energized, and this turned from a solemn occasion to really a celebration, which it should be anyway. Well, that's what you try. Trump was like in front of, he was like at a rally. And once he started feeding off the crowd and the crowd was laughing, he's walking to the crowd, he's high-fiving people. He's, you know, I mean, it, he literally took it to a whole new level, but the, but my guys responded to it. And it was just, it's, it's a, it's such a, you, you forget that it's on TV and you forget that everyone's watching it. Uh, but as the citations being read, I'm looking at these guys' faces, and, and the one thing I wasn't expecting is that you know, I kind of forced them to go back in time, and not a lot of these guys necessarily wanted to. They wanted to be with each other. That We wanted to be a unit again. We wanted that camaraderie, but we didn't necessarily all – we weren't all prepared to go back to war. And I started to see that on a stage in front of millions of people. I started to see 
that these guys are all going back with me. And, and the willingness to do that for me was one of the most selfless acts right back to the war. These guys risked their lives for me and now they're willing to put themselves back at a horrible time just to be there with me. It, it meant the world to me. It touched my heart and it made me appreciate the ramrods more than ever. As I said, this ceremony is very solemn normally. The generals are there. The secretaries are there. In your instance, there were seven living Medal of Honor attendees, which is really unusual, uh, high praise. Uh, this is an elite group of men who have done extraordinary things of valor. But um, I have talked to uh, Medal of Honor recipients uh, in the past who who reveal that you know maybe i was a little drunk during the ceremony i was so nervous i had to i had to have uh, maybe more than i should have um you have a similar story to calm your nerves you uh you took a little dip tell us about tell us about that yeah so, so i'm not a drinker and i've never been one of those guys but and when you are going back into a wormhole you know, I was a big cigarette and tobacco user when I was in the war, and obviously I quit, and I didn't need that anymore. But when I put the uniform back on, I felt like the uniform wasn't complete without the without the tobacco. I needed to get back into that. That was who I was back then. I needed to get back into character. So one of my friends, uh, Fitz and Knapp, they gave me uh, some Copenhagen, and I, I just threw a chaw in. And I, it's like, wow, this is, I miss this. This is incredible. And before I know it, the president's like, let's go. And I'm like, sir, I've got a giant wad of tobacco in my mouth. And he's like, you, you're not going to go out there with tobacco in your mouth. I'm like, well, what, what are my options here, Mr. President? I don't know what to do. He's like, if you don't spit on my carpet. And I'm like, I'm not going <laughs> to spit on your carpet, I promise you. But all the photos of that ceremony all these people came up to me and still do and say, like, I looked at your face and you look so emotional. You look so stressed. You look so like you were in a tough spot. I said, you know, honestly, I was just thinking, don't swallow this juice because you're going to vomit <laughs> on national TV. Yeah. I had so much juice in my mouth that I didn't know what to do with it. So I just kind of like slowly started to swallow a little bit at a time to get through it. But I just, I, it was horrible. It was the wor- I never should have done it and don't do tobacco products. Well, there's a lot of vets who get a big laugh out of that because they can re- relate to having the, the chew at the wrong period of time and not having an outlet. Having received the award now in, in, in 2019, the Medal of Honor Award, you've, you've worn it for three years or so now. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about the responsibility you feel as a Medal of Honor recipient and maybe the weight that goes with being such a recipient? It's, it's heavy. I, I didn't know most of these guys are young when they get the award. And, and so the, the whole world is their oyster and everyone's going to go out and make different choices. I wanted to be the guy that went back in the army. So I, I, even though I was 40 and old, I went and said, use me. I don't, I don't know what to do with this thing. I don't want to go to Hollywood and be an action star I don't want to take this and build. I want to just, I want to put more people in the army. So would you, and they were like, well, no one has ever offered us that. Like, we'll take you. And I'm like, great. So I went from the Medal of Honor stage in Washington, D.C. to basically two and a half years all through COVID, 
just recruiting as many people as I possibly could, going from towns that have never seen a, a recipient or the award to talking to parents, talking to kids about reenlisting, uh, going to ROC, ROTC graduations, and just literally 27 days a month on the road, not, you know, signing autographs and, you know, making speeches, but just talking to young people about this choice, this choice to serve and how important it is and how we're needed more than ever with all the threats that are in the world. And that was an incredible experience. And that was, it meant so much to me to be back in, I'm a soldier again, you know, and, and, and it was like so much time had gone by, but yet it was like, it was yesterday. And, uh, you know, but I, I did that. I loved it. And then I got out of that and I kind of went back to now this is real. This is happening now. What, what do you do with it? And the key is that you just try to remind people that, you know, our country is worth any sacrifice. And this award doesn't represent me or my actions. It represents generations of blood, generations of sacrifice. You know, to get the Medal of Honor, it has to be witnessed. How many people in a trench line in World War I did something that nobody saw? How many people in Korea did something that nobody saw? That sacrifice is there. It's with us. We have to acknowledge it and genuflect to those generations, but at the same time be reminded that this next group is going to be as lethal, as professional, and as disciplined as any previous generation. And these young kids, we could, we could pile on the young generation and how irresponsible and they don't make their beds, but they are lethal and they are professional and they are decent, good men and women, and they are ready to do whatever this country asks them to do. And that is the new mission. Yeah. And I'm proudly taking that mission on. Well, I, uh, again, uh, we're talking to David Bellavia, Medal of Honor recipient, uh, still a very young man. Uh, who's going to carry this weight uh, throughout his life and continue to hopefully demonstrate to people the value of service, the value of service above self, and uh, encourage those next generations. Uh, it's a great honor talking to you, David. Uh, your current book, Remember the Ramrods and Army, Brotherhood in War and Peace, is much more reflective uh, than House to House, his earlier book. And I think these... Uh, for for those who want to get a better insight, they're they're both uh, great great reads. David, thanks for taking some time today with Veterans Radio. Hey, thank you for doing this program for as long as you have and doing it in the way you do it. You're giving voice to so many people. Uh, God bless you and much respect. Thank you for doing what you do. Thank you. Getting the opportunity to talk to Medal of Honor recipients is certainly one of the highlights of being associated with Veterans Radio. I hope you enjoyed that uh, interview and got some insight. Uh, I certainly enjoyed it and learned a lot. He's a great guy and gave us a g great insights. Let's have a few words from our additional sponsors, and then we'll get back to another story that raises this issue about, hey, who controls the National Guard? Military veterans touch everyone's life. I'm guessing right now you're thinking of a veteran, a close friend, relative. Maybe it's you. Even the toughest of us sometimes need help, but don't know where to turn for support. You don't need special training to help a veteran in your life. We can all help someone going through a difficult time. 
Learn how you can be there for veterans. Visit VeteransCrisisLine.net. VeteransCrisisLine.net. A message from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. If you have a VA claim denied by the Board of Veterans' Appeals, contact Legal Help for Veterans at 1-800-693-4800. They're experts in handling cases before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans' Claims. Their number again, 1-800-693-4800. We want to welcome to Veterans Radio today, Professor Jason Mazzoni. Uh, Jason, welcome to Veterans Radio. Thank you so much, Jim. Now, let me set this up. Uh, the professor is uh, a professor of law. Don't get scared off. He's a good guy. He is the Albert E. Jenner, Jr. Professor of Law at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and director of the Illinois Program in Constitutional Theory, History, and Law. And he was brought to our attention by an interesting article, in, a recent article in the Army Times about who owns the National Guard and a court uh, decision down in Texas that uh, will have some implications on that. But I should also say that uh, uh, Professor Mazzoni, he got his undergraduate or master's, I guess it was, at Stanford University. He has his J.D., his law degree from Harvard Law. He also picked up a master's in law at Yale Law School. Uh, so he's deep and wide in these legal issues, and we're going to drag him over to the military and veterans side. So, Jason, you ready to give this a try? Yes, I am. Let's do it. So, as I said, it's an interesting article that caught my attention in the Army Times, and, and it was over a lawsuit filed, as I understand it, uh, by the Texas governor, Greg Abbott, over his legal fight against the Pentagon's requirement for COVID-19 vaccines. And uh, right. he didn't like he didn't want his Texas National Guard folks to have to comply with the federal requirement, and that's sort of the um, jump start of this dispute, isn't it? That's right. Uh, so uh, Governor Abbott uh, sued the Biden administration to block uh, it from enforcing by punishing members of the uh, Texas Guard. Uh, this vaccination, COVID vaccination requirement, as you as you said, uh, Jim, uh, and um, uh, Abbott's position uh, was an interesting position. He said, uh, so long as the guard uh, has not been mobilized by the federal government, so long as it's not in federal service, uh, the federal government, particularly the the president as commander in chief, lacks authority under the Constitution to punish guardsmen uh, for failure to follow uh, a federal order, in this case, the vaccination requirement. Uh, that uh, under the Constitution, that power is reserved to the state, and particularly in this case to the governor, to impose uh, punishment in the form of a fine or a discharge or court-martial. If you mobilize the the, the guard, uh, then yes, uh, you, uh, President, uh, can impose a punishment for failure to uh, be vaccinated. But until that happens, uh, and the, the guard uh, is just under uh, normal uh, state uh, oversight, uh, there's no authority, Abbott said, under the Constitution uh, for the Commander-in-Chief, the President, uh, to impose any sort of punishment uh, against guardsmen for uh, failure to comply with a federal uh, directive. So you see how this issue, uh, I don't know if it's political or social issue between the governor and the president over something that was controversial, the COVID vaccines, gets in played here. And the professor mentioned numerous times it's a, it's a constitutional issue. 
who's got the power? Now, we all know, uh, anybody who's served and been around the military knows that uh, when you're on active duty, it's the president. He's the commander-in-chief. But the, the National Guard in all 50 states uh, really report up to the governor of that state, who's in charge and the commander-in-chief. And it's more important today than ever, as we come off our 20-year war in Afghanistan, there's about a million four uh, active-duty members in the U.S. military, but there are 450,000 active guardsmen in the states. So that adds to the strength of the military by about 32%, and they were all used pretty much uh, in Afghanistan. So you see that this isn't a small issue. It's kind of, while it's a little wonky, Professor, it's like a real issue of who's in charge, and what did the what did the courts say about this? Well, so this um, uh, was filed in federal district court by uh, the governor. The governor lost uh, in uh, federal district court. Um, he then appealed uh, to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, which is the uh, intermediate federal appellate court. It's one step below the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, and, and there, um, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit agreed, um, at least at this stage of the case, it's still in a preliminary uh, stage of the case where Abbott is seeking um, an initial order blocking uh, any punishment against guardsmen. But the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit disagreed uh, with the conclusion of the lower court, the district court, uh, and suggested uh, that its view uh, was that Abbott had uh, a quite good uh, legal argument under the Constitution, sent it back down to the district court for it to reassess uh, its prior order with a pretty strong hint uh, that Abbott should prevail at least this uh, this stage of the case. Uh, where, again, he's seeking a preliminary order uh, to keep things um, uh, as they are, to maintain the status quo, to prevent the, uh, the federal government from punishing any members of the Guard while the case uh, proceeds uh, in the federal courts. Uh, and so, you know, where things stand at this point, um, it's before the trial court uh, again, but following this pretty strong suggestion from the Court of Appeals, the Intermediate uh, uh, Appellate Court in the federal system, that Abbott's claim um, has uh, has some, some real merit, um, that, uh, that the president, uh, the Department of Defense, uh, lacks authority um, until guardsmen are actually mobilized to discharge them uh, or to court-martial them or to fine them uh, or to do anything else by way of, by way of punishment. And the, the circuit court's reasoning uh, was based upon these old provisions of the Constitution that don't say anything about the National Guard because there was no such thing when the Constitution right. was right. drafted, but they refer to the, the militia uh, and, uh, and who, um, who controls and has power over the, the militia under the original Constitution. The court took the view uh, that the Guard uh, is uh, equivalent to the uh, old uh, militia, and so those militia provisions of the Constitution that divide power between the national government and the states, that they apply uh, to, uh, to, to the Guard. Uh, today, uh, in the same way that they applied to uh, to the militia, and uh, the circuit court said, you know, if we look at these provisions, yes, uh, uh, the federal government has certain powers, but it said the power um, to provide for governing uh, the militia uh, only belongs to the national government when uh, guardsmen are in federal service, and the power to 
govern includes the power to punish. Uh, and so a kind of straight-up, plain reading of the text of the Constitution, the circuit court said, uh, means that until there is mobilization uh, of uh, uh, guardsmen, um, in the same way uh, as would have been true with respect to the militia, the power to impose punishment is one uh, that uh, belongs to the state. If you want to punish, you have to wait, federal government, uh, until you've actually called the guard or a historical case of militia into federal service. That's what the Constitution says. Well, and that's the issue that kind of dragged Professor Mazzoni into this from the University of... Oh, this of- is great stuff. I mean, this is, you know, this, this, you know we, so you might think, oh, this is a kind of specialized issue uh, to today, but historically, uh, you know, control over the militia, this is one of the biggest issues of the Philadelphia Convention, right? This sort of um, uh, concern about uh, uh, national security and how you're going to uh, make sure that you have sufficient uh, security personnel, kind of concern about a large standing army, and so instead of that, we'll allow the national government to deploy the militia in certain circumstances, but we're concerned about that because the militia is really an entity under state governmental and local governmental control, so you have to be very careful uh, about the circumstances under which we're going to allow the national government to exercise authority uh, over those old militia forces, and this is the kind of compromise that has worked out at the Constitutional Convention, you know, 1787. Uh, gets adopted as part of the Constitution uh, within the next two years, and here we are today, you know, talking about uh, essentially the same the same question. But in the context of COVID vaccines, which of course nobody had thought about uh, in, in, in the seven in the seventeen eighties, but really raising the same basic question: uh, who gets to decide? Who's in charge? Um, and uh, here the court says, well, the Constitution tells you. Well, and and it is relevant today, and that's kind of why the article caught my attention and I wanted to talk to uh, Professor Mazzoni who who has researched and written a lot on this issue of the uh, militia clause that was quoted by the court which is always a nice thing you know makes you feel good that somebody <laughs> that thought we, your work I, was I, I live I live for that I mean, yeah. that's what law professors live for yes but it's relevant today not only because of this COVID uh, dispute but those of us who've been around for a while can think back when we were required to take the anthrax vaccine right and there was a lot of dispute about hey I'm not going over there why am I taking this and I can project it forward uh, by saying we have a lot of states that allow marijuana use and both medically and recreationally, but the federal government doesn't. So how who gets to decide whether somebody gets uh, disciplined because they test positive for marijuana? And right. so there, there, there's a this is issue is going to go on for a while. That, that's but, right. And, you know, most of the time, um, as you said at the outset, um, we – uh, you know, the federal government and, uh, and the states, the president and the governor are basically on the same page. Um, but the issues emerge when they're not. Um, when, uh, the governor uh, of a state, uh, as here with respect to, uh, Governor Abbott, uh, thinks that there's a kind of punishment being uh, imposed that is uh, unwarranted. Um, so that's really where the, these sorts of issues can emerge. And when they do emerge, uh, they can be uh, really important. I mean, this question of whether uh, the federal government can actually impose this directive uh, against uh, uh, militiamen who, uh, or National Guardsmen uh, who are not yet in federal service for failure to do what? Failure to obtain a COVID vaccine, um, uh, an issue as to which there was, of course, uh, a great deal of, of, of controversy.
And the government argued in this case, as I understand it, at the Fifth Circuit, um, hey, we the federal government give these national, state national guard troops plenty of money and plenty of training when they're not federalized, and therefore, because we give the money, we get to control the the strings that go with it. I'm sure that's an oversimplification, but wasn't that the basic argument? That's absolutely right. Um, The the government had had several arguments, but one of the arguments, as you as you point out, Jim, uh, is uh, look, um, we are we're we're paying for this, right? Um, uh, Yes, we understand the distinction between uh, uh, guardsmen who have not uh, been been mobilized and those who who have, uh, and uh, we certainly understand that as a distinction. Uh, But even uh, when uh, guardsmen are not yet uh, in federal service, um, they're being uh, supported significantly through federal dollars. Uh, And if we're paying, um, you know, we should be able to call the tune. Uh, And um, as a condition uh, of you, state, receiving this money uh, for your National Guard, we are attaching this requirement that that they be uh, vaccinated. And the the circuit court said, uh, well, um, uh, uh, there are lots of circumstances in which the federal government uh, can give out money uh, to states and attach various sorts of conditions to those uh, to those grants. We see this a lot in the context of education and so on, uh, uh, where the federal government makes um, uh, financial uh, grants to states and says, if you want the money, here's what you've got to do in return. But the circuit court said uh, that condition, though, that is attached cannot be a violation of the Constitution. And here, the government is essentially saying um, to the states, you must do something um, that uh, uh, itself uh, is not permitted under the Constitution. Uh, and so uh, that's a limit on the ability of the federal government to uh, impose uh, conditions upon upon federal grants. You cannot require uh, militiamen uh, to be vaccinated unless they're, uh, I'm sorry, guardsmen to be vaccinated unless they're in federal service. Uh, and you cannot impose that as a condition on a grant either uh, because you can't force the states to agree to things that violate the Constitution as a condition of receiving money. And so the government lost on that point as well. So there's a uh, veteran radio listener, uh, Professor Jason Mazzoni of the University of Illinois, just gave you the synopsis of the first year of constitutional law and a very expensive education. You can't put conditions on that violate the Constitution. Seems simple when you say it like that. It's a, it's, a, it's a basic principle. Um, you don't get to you don't get to bribe uh, people uh, uh, to get around constitutional limits. Now I'm going to back up a little bit because this is a such a unique little uh, area. But um, how the heck did you get so interested in the militia clause and research and writing it that you find your way into the Fifth Circuit uh, uh, opinions? <laughs> I've always been interested in the security elements of the Constitution. Um, you know, when, when, when we teach constitutional law, uh, as we do to first-year students, we spend a lot of time talking about government powers and individual rights and so on. Um, and it struck me when I first started teaching that 
a, a large theme uh, of the Constitution is national security. If you sort of think about a dominant theme um, in the document, uh, that's what it is, um, that there are provisions throughout the Constitution that um, anticipate uh, that there will be national security problems on the horizon uh, and, um, uh, and, 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 and provide for some kind of effective response uh, to, uh, to that. Uh, today, of course, you know, we, we, we don't often uh, think about the country uh, being at risk of being invaded and, um, uh, or, or, or subject to uh, internal insurrections uh, and other kinds of, uh, other kinds of uh, uh, security challenges. But for Americans of the 1780s, this was the thing that they thought a lot about, um, uh, uh, invasion um, uh, or uh, individuals in the country who were waiting to topple the government. Uh, and they built a constitution that uh, anticipated that there would be national security challenges and, uh, and anticipated the need to have uh, an effective response to them. And central uh, to the design uh, that was created was, as I said uh, uh, earlier, this division of authority over the militia uh, in a context in which um, you had minimal professional soldiers uh, and there was a general concern about a large standing uh, army. The militia was supposed to be your principal fighting uh, force. And so there are lots of provisions throughout the Constitution that deal with this issue of the role of the militia uh, in uh, uh, with respect to national security um, and the more important question of who gets to uh, who gets to direct the activities uh, of the of the militia. So this is a big theme uh, of the original Constitution and in some ways uh, it, it captures many of the uh, concerns uh, that were in play at the time the Constitution is adopted, concerns about division of power between the national government and the state, uh, questions about the role uh, of ordinary Americans, because that's essentially what the militia uh, was uh, in um, uh, in security operations and in the operations of government uh, more, more, more generally. Um, and so these are sort of old provisions that were very important in the 1780s, um, and as to which I think you can learn a great deal about the Constitution in, in, in general, if you're going to dust them off. Uh, and, uh, and and think about um, and, and think about them, and then occasionally you get an exciting case like the one out of the Fifth <laughs> Circuit that actually talks about the militia, which you know it's kind of unheard of. There are very few cases uh, in which you get a, an extensive uh, historical uh, discussion. So these things that you sometimes think uh, are no longer relevant uh, can actually, as here, uh, turn out to be uh, incredibly uh, important still. So somebody out there is thinking, and certainly the government attorneys did that said, hey, the, the Constitution talks about a militia. It has, it has nothing to do with the National Guard. It doesn't look like the National Guard. It's a totally different concept. You, you can't take that archaic idea from the 1780s and bring it forward. Uh, wh- what say you, Professor? I think you know. I think there's a there's something really to be said about about that. <laughs> there you go. Only, only a law professor would see the fun of it. We, Jason Mazzoni, uh, professor of law, we really appreciate you taking the time to help us understand the controversy of who's really in charge of the National Guard and who gets to set those kind of rules. Um, if this continues on, I'm sure we'll be talking again. But again, thanks for your time today, Jason. My pleasure, Jim. Hope you enjoyed that uh, discussion with Professor Mazzoni. Not a day goes by that you don't hear about a controversy uh, between the federal government and state governments, particularly the Biden administration and Abbott's uh, administration down in Texas because of the inflow of um, 
illegal aliens and what role can the National Guard play down there and when does it cross over and the, the federal government's in charge. So these are, you know, these are discussions that uh, go on maybe at the highest levels that we don't think about, but there are legal, there are constitutional issues and some of those have to be sorted out by the court as um, Professor Mazzoni indicated, this will probably end up in the Supreme Court at some point to sort of sort this issue out a little bit. And and is today's National Guard really the same as the militia talked about in uh, the Constitution? As we come to wrap this up, uh, I'm Jim Fossone. I'm a veterans disability lawyer with Legal Help for Veterans as well as Veterans Radio org's podcast host so we're glad to bring this to you and we want to thank vietnam veterans of america charles s kettles chapter 310 in ann arbor as well as the vfw graph o'hara post 423 and the american legion press corn post 46 we can't do this without that kind of support you can support us by going to veteransradio.org and donating away we'd really do appreciate every little bit that you give us as we look to expand our coverage and expand our content that we give you and if you've got some content that you'd like us to interview people with or delve deeper into a particular subject send dale or myself a email at uh, dale at veteransradio.org or jim at veteransradio.org we'd love to do that and get uh, on the air those programs that you're interested in having and until next time on veterans radio you are dismissed <laughs>